So this morning, uh, as I said earlier, recalibration of reality. Say you're a Georgia football fan, you're probably not as happy as you would have been. If you're a Florida fan, you're probably too happy. And you can extend that to everything else that went on this week. Our passage this morning is a hard passage. It's difficult, but I'm very excited because as I studied it, even though it was hard, it was very encouraging. It reminded me of what is eternal, of what matters, and ultimately what, what gives us our place in this world that we are living in. So we're simply going to read uh, Hebrews. We're continuing on with our sermon series in Hebrews, and I'm going to read for us chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. So let's, let's just go ahead and get into this passage, Then I'll tell you where we're going to go, and we'll try to do that as quickly as we can. Beginning in verse 4, chapter 6, the writer, inspired by God's Spirit, says, For it is impossible... To restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, your spirit would work in our hearts this morning, even as I speak, even as those who are here listen. Pray your blessings that we would see Jesus Christ. We'd see him more clear today than we have in the past, in whose name we pray, amen. So like I said, I, I, I don't know if, if you were paying attention, it seems to start out uh, this passage in a pretty harsh way. So let me give you the path that we're going through this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about this warning. We're going to talk about this reminder. And it's really a reminder in some form or fashion that <clears throat> we can't pretend forever. Or I like to say it like this, it, What's truly on the inside will eventually, has to, work its way out on the outside. And he gives this reminder because he says, I know what's worked its way out in the past. That's the second point. So there's a reminder, there's a a reference to the past, and there is a, a promise, if you will, or a challenge for us that it will continue into the future. So the first point is longer, it's that reminder. Then he refers back to their past life and looks forward to tomorrow. 
The reminder, let's put ourselves, before we get into this, let's put ourselves for a second into the shoes of these readers of this letter at the time, the original audience. It's important because I think we can relate to some things really well. There are other things that we may have a harder time relating to. But what's happened to the people of of Hebrews here, some time ago, probably years ago, they embraced Jesus Christ. They left their old way of life, and they finally felt like their hope was solid because they knew Jesus Christ, and they they were moving towards him. But what's happened over time, over years even, they've experienced suffering. They've experienced the struggle with sin. And they've been in all sorts of trouble. And it's continued on for a long time. And because it's continued on for a long time, they are tired. Now, the first part of that, we can understand how difficult the Christian life can be sometimes. We can understand how hard it is to struggle with sin. We can understand how we we thought at the beginning of our Christian life everything was going to be really good, really strong. And yet over the years you say, ah, this might be a little bit harder than I thought it was. We can understand that. What I think we have more trouble understanding is the fact that they are specifically struggling because the world that they're living in is persecuting them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So if they were living in our day, they would be ridiculed because they went to church. Or if they sent their kids to school, the kids would come back and they would be crying because uh, the kids tried to share something about what they believed and all their friends would make fun of them. Some of them may have, if they live today, may have or would have lost their jobs because they were worshiping Jesus. That's hard for us to relate to. But that's what we're dealing with here in this passage. They started strong in Jesus Christ, but because of the world that they lived in, they were tired and they were wondering if this stuff was really worth it. So, the writer in that context, he begins by saying this, and he says it in verse four. He says, hey, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. And he, and he describes what it means to be enlightened, meaning you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've shared in the Holy Spirit, you've tasted the goodness of the word of the God and the powers of the age to come. It's impossible if you then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now that is a pretty severe, pretty strong warning. And I would like to soften it. I really would. I tried all week long to figure out a way to soften it, and I can't soften it. But I can simplify it. So let me say it like this. Repentance is impossible. If you've known all the good things about Jesus Christ, you've experienced the blessings of Christ, and then you turn from him and deny him and walk away. So the illustration that I have for you, and it's not a perfect illustration, but I think it's a pretty good illustration, Say that we're going on a trip today as Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and we got a big bus out there, and we all get in the bus, and we're really excited because it's a fun trip. We get in that bus, and it's a straight shot to our destination, and we're all really looking forward to getting to that destination. We're having a good time talking to each other, getting to know one another a little bit better. We're really excited about where we're going. And even after a few hours of, of talking, we're, we're, we're driving, 
And we happen by uh, a road sign on the right, and it talks about this great restaurant that we can go eat at, and everybody's really excited. That sounds like a great place to eat. When we get there, we're going to have a meal like we've never had before. Then we go a little bit further on, there's another billboard on the left, and it talks about, imagine whatever you'd like to do. The most fun thing that you can imagine doing, that billboard says, it's there at your destination, and we're really excited. We can't wait to get there. Then eventually we keep going, it gets a little bit longer, and it starts to get dark. It's not as easy to see at night. Not only that, then it starts to rain. And it rains hard. And it rains so hard that after an hour of rain and darkness, all of us are tired. And we're so tired, we just say, you know, this may not be worth it. So let's turn around and let's go back. What the writer is saying is if you have a destination over here and that's the way to get there, if you turn around and you go that way, you will never get here. There's no way if you're going that way to get here. It is impossible to be restored to repentance as long as you are going the opposite way of your destination. First thing that I want to remind you about, and by, by the way, let me, let, me, let me clarify that trip. It doesn't mean that you might make a wrong turn. He, he's not even accounting for wrong turns. He's not accounting for, oh, maybe you turn back to get something. He's saying, if you're going that way, you'll never get over here. It's as simple as that. The first thing that I want to tell you about this warning is it's not that new in the Bible. These type of warnings begin in Genesis and end in Revelation and everywhere in between. It's a serious thing to deny the promises of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of warnings like this. It's not that unique. But for some of us here, I think maybe even most of us here, the question that is probably going through your mind is, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? Some of you thinking that? The short answer is no. But I don't expect you to let me get away with that, so let me explain to you what the writer is saying. He's saying you can't have the good things of Christianity and skip repentance in Jesus Christ. He's saying you can't pretend forever. You're going to keep following Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. You're going to keep moving towards Jesus Christ or you're going to give up and you're going to fall away. And if you do fall away, you're crucifying once again the Son of God, holding him up to contempt. And I know that's hard. But I do want you to realize that when Matt leads us in the Lord's Supper, we're kind of saying the same thing. You can't come to the table if you're running away from Jesus Christ. You can't come and meet Jesus if you're not moving towards him. Now, the table is given for us to be invited. And, and really what we're saying is we're asking you to make sure what you look like on the outside is consistent with what's on the inside. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unloving about that. It's the most important question that you should answer Am I living in light of what I believe to be true or am I living a lie? It's a hard passage, but it's not as hard as we make it out to be. There's a lot of things that we can't fully comprehend about the ways of God, right? Is that not true? 
I mean, I have a hard enough time figuring out what's in my own heart, let alone what's going on in your hearts. I can't fully comprehend that. But in the Bible, you will see a lot of times where two people experience the same blessings of God and one responds one way and another responds another way. All you have to do is think of Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He experienced the same thing the other 11 disciples experienced. He was taught by Jesus. He did miracles in, 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 the, in the spirit of, of Christ. He, his feet were washed just like the other 11 disciples. He, he even... Just like the other 11 disciples, on the, the night that Jesus needed his friends most, they all left. The only difference is the other 11 came back and Judas kept going. That's the part of our passage here of the parable that I'm not going to talk a lot about this morning. The rain falls on the land. Some of the land produces good fruit. Other land produces thorns and thistles, and we don't know exactly why. It's just a fact. So let me be real clear about the, for those of you who struggle with assurance, and I know, I saw you this morning, there are many of you out there who struggle with assurance. And I'm speaking for myself, but I think I can speak for all the pastors here at Redeemer. I have never once been approached by somebody struggling with the assurance of salvation, and they've told me, I hate Jesus. Never had anybody tell me that. I've had people say, I'm struggling because I don't feel like life is fair. I'm struggling because, because things just aren't going the way I would like it to go. I'm struggling with sin, but you realize this passage is not talking about the struggle. The passage is talking about in the midst of the struggle, where do you go with it? Where do you go with your sin? We're not talking about sinning or the effects of sin. What we're saying is, well, let me say it like this. It's impossible for restoration, not because you sin, not because you struggle, but rather because you turn your back on Jesus Christ. Think about David. We're not even talking about wicked sin. We're not talking about the worst sin imaginable, where David commits adultery and David has people murdered. The question is, what do you do with your struggle? What do you do with your sin? Do you take it to Jesus or do you turn, run, and hide? That's what our author is talking about. It's a rejection of God's grace in Christ that is the falling away. So the point that I want to draw out for you in this, in this first point, the writer's not looking back in the past saying, I wonder what happened to little Jimmy, why he seemed to start out so strong and he turned his back on Jesus. He's not talking about I wonder why. He's talking to people about the future and he says, I know you're struggling. I know it's harder than you ever imagined and I need you to just keep moving to Jesus. It's the most comforting thing in the world. That the only thing that we have to do as Christians is keep looking to Christ. It's actually a very common human occurrence with us that's happened even, I know, in the community here at Redeemer. We can become so overwhelmed with our circumstances. We can become so overwhelmed with our troubles and our situation that, that our perceptions of life are skewed. And it's so hard, listen to this, it's so hard that we have trouble living by faith in the future promise of God. If you haven't experienced that, I promise you will. Trouble living by faith in the future promise of God. When I speak with people who are struggling, when I struggle in my own 
faith. We have a tendency to be so focused in on ourselves. We think we can mess up God's plan for our lives. There's a real difference between struggling with sin and struggling with the mess of the world and turning your back on Christ. And that's why the main message of Hebrews, if I could narrow it down to one sentence, it would be the writer of the Hebrews wants his people to never take their eyes off Jesus. And, and when, they get, when they get cloudy in their, in their minds, when they're not perceiving things the way they would like, or even when bad things happen, he's continually saying, don't take your eyes off Jesus. So there's your reminder. There's your warning. He wants us to be really who we are, understanding what we have. And the beautiful part of this passage is he goes, I know that's a hard saying. Secondly, he says, I know it's going to be okay. And I know it's going to be okay because I've seen what's on the inside in the past. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, don't let that just pass you by. That's never used in the book of Hebrews. This is the only time it's used. He loves his people. Beloved, we feel sure, we feel certain of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints. The reason that he can be so blunt is because he loves these people and he is certain of better things, things that belong to salvation. And the things that belong to salvation are their work and service for Christ serving other people, particularly those in the church. These are the things that belong to salvation. He's not saying, hey, these things get you into heaven. He's saying, because you were moving towards that destination, these are the things that you did. It's a sign that God is truly at work in them. Secondly, the writer is certain because God is not unjust. This is a really encouraging part. Do you realize that everything done by you in faith and by faith in Jesus Christ, even if it's done poorly, even if it doesn't work out the way that you thought, anything and everything done for Jesus Christ by faith is blessed by God God is not so unjust that he, that he doesn't know that you're trying to follow him and because he knows you're trying to follow him even in the midst of struggle, he is pleased with you. He receives our works gladly and all we have to do is keep trying. Do you, do you realize the pressure's off? I mean, the Gillespie's, they just made some pretty serious promises that they were gonna raise their children for the glory of God. They promise to live in dependence. You know what? They're going to mess up tomorrow. And it's okay because they're trying in faith, and God will bless that. I want to be real here. The writer is not saying that things in life will get better. He's not saying the darkness is going to go away or the rain's going to stop. The writer is saying that Christ is better and makes this life worth living. The acts of service that they did and the love to their fellow saints, it will be costly. There's nothing harder than continuing to serve Jesus when you just don't feel like he's always there for you. But you got to remember the future promise of God's grace in Jesus Christ at your destination. I know it's going to get better because I've seen 
what's on the inside in the past. I've seen your work and you, you are so, so involved in the mess of the world, you're forgetting it. But he remembers. And then he goes on, third point. He says to the Hebrews, I've seen you do it in the past, now don't stop until Jesus Christ comes back. I've seen you do it in the past, all you have to do is not give up. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the future, he says, continue to show the same diligence that you did at the beginning with hope until the end. And then he says this, that we don't talk about much, imitate those who through faith and long suffering inherit the promise of life eternal. Imitate those who through faith and long-suffering inherit the promise of life eternal. It's interesting. It doesn't say it in our passage here, but the next person he talks about is Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith, he believed God and he was declared righteous. Do you realize he never got to possess the promise? In chapter 11, verse 8, this is how Abraham is described. Going without knowing. In other words, imitate Abraham, keep going, and you may not see the end until you get there. We talk all the time about, hey, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel so I can keep going. You realize people of the faith, they don't always see that light with their physical eyes. They have to see that light with the eyes of faith, and the rest of the world can't see it, but we can because we're trusting in the God who is for us. And the world will often look at us and say, I don't understand. Or worse, they say, you're strange. But we keep going because we know that God's promise is sure. You may not see the end until you get there, but we're to follow Abraham because his hope was in God. So the question that I want to leave you with that we're going to spend a couple of minutes on this morning is, what is it that you are hoping for? Are you hoping for a self-fulfilled life? Because Hebrews doesn't promise it to the people that he was writing to. Are you hoping um, in the life where you and your loved ones get all the world has to offer? Or are you going without knowing all the details and trusting God for your future? What are you hoping for? The life of faith is not a life of inactivity. It's certainly not a life of turning back. The life of faith is a perseverance of pilgrimage. And I didn't get to share this in the early service, but I want to share it now. I had a friend, I don't like telling you guys army stories because you think I'm I'm, I'm like cool or something. I'm not, okay? There's a long time ago and I couldn't do it now. But I had a buddy in the army. We were, we had a temporary duty station where we had to meet at a, a certain army post. We had to be there at a particular time. And if you didn't make it at a particular time, you were out. And me, the type of guy I am, I got there the day before, so it was no problem. But my buddy, Lieutenant McCormick, he kind of waited around. And he was driving from Texas all the way to another state, and his car broke down. He was about nine miles out. And um, I asked him what happened. He said, my car broke down. I said, what'd you do? He said, I got my bag, I put it on my back, I got a dip of Copenhagen, and I ran all the way here. And he made it. He made it. 
It doesn't matter if your car breaks down on the way to the destination, the place that you're going. It doesn't matter. What happens is you get out of the car, you put your bag on your back, and you keep going. That's what the author wants us. That, no matter what you're going through today, and I know some of you are going through some very difficult things, the author's saying, don't stop chasing after Jesus because he has you. It's easy to become beaten down in this world that we live in, to become sluggish, to become dull of hearing, and you may even want to quit on Jesus. But this service this morning is reminding you, particularly as we come to the table, you don't have to quit. You can keep following Jesus. Let's keep going. Let's never give up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I I do thank you for Jesus Christ here this morning. I pray. I pray that we've seen his love in this passage. I pray that we would remember his mercy, his kindness, that we would be able to continue to follow him, to hold on and never let go. Not because we're strong in and of ourselves, because we know that Jesus Christ has us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's come to the Lord's table now.